Hello, welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Week one of the US Open, well, it's nearly over. The round of 16 is almost complete, and we're here to run through some of the week one talking points while getting you set for the run-in. My name is Gigi Salmon, and I'm very happy to be joined by two familiar voices to ATP Tennis Radio, Robbie Koenig and Nick Lester. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. We are in, we've got a fabulous position. I should say, to start with, it is Saturday evening, there are still some matches taking place. We're in a commentary box overlooking the Arthur Ashe Court where Maria Sharapova is in action. And Robbie, it is, it's a very privileged view. I mean, it's quite high up, but it's also a very privileged position to be in. It is, yes. Uh, nice to be back on the show with you, Gigi. And uh, pretty full house here on the Labor Day weekend. Um, we saw Kyrgios and Federer a little earlier. That was full. And uh, looking forward to discuss many topics in week one with you. Now, I think we should start Nick Lester, because you've just been—it's <laughs> like a school teacher. We've just been—you've just been commentating on the big shock of the week so far in the men's draw. I have, yes, and what a performance it was from Philip Kohlschreiber—the the variety and the skill sets that he's possessed over the last fifteen years on the tour have been a lot of fun to watch, haven't they? And he may not have won the big prizes necessarily, but he's been a thorn in the side of a lot of a lot of players. And and I think tonight we saw the value, particularly of the slice backhand, something he used. Uh, in almost two-thirds of the time in that match this evening from, from really that first set onwards, the ability to, to keep the ball low to Zverev, get the ball out of the strike zone, make it difficult, draw him forwards as well. Zverev's a guy who likes pr- to sit fairly deep, so that was another factor. Made a lot of balls, returned a lot back into play. Zverev was definitely nervous, you could tell, from the, even the first two or three games. He didn't look himself. He was edgy. He was tight. As, not too dissimilar in many ways to last year. I think you did the match with Chorich, didn't you, here last year? And it was a, a, quite a sort of similar feeling uh, in terms of the sort of nerve, nerves that seem to be around him, I guess facing a fellow German probably uh, was a factor in there as well. But full credit to Kohlschreiber, who, uh, who's just a whole lot of fun to watch, isn't he? He is. Um, backhand slice causes these guys uh, so many problems. The guys like the ball in the strikes are nice and high around, you know, midriff area. And Kohlschreiber doesn't give him that luxury. And he stuck with the game plan. Of course, he'd beaten him twice before as well. So he wasn't going to be intimidated by the fact that the guy had a, a better ranking than him. Now, Robbie, we might lose you because you're actually covering Novak Djokovic's match, which follows Maria Sharapova, and that might finish quite soon. So I want to make the most of you while you're here. So what would you like to talk about from week one? Well, uh, I think a couple of uh, discussions. The weather in particular was uh, a big discussion point, excuse me, early on in the week. And I've been coming here for about 25 years, and I can't remember it ever being so brutal. You have hot days, but with the... Berg wind that was about, and it was still on some of those days. The humidity was suffocating the guys. Listen, I come from in Durban, South Africa. It gets pretty warm and humid in the summer. We're pretty close to the ocean. Um, and I can handle hot and humid weather, but these guys were having to play in tough conditions. And my fellow countrymen, starting with someone, why don't we start there close to home, Kevin Anderson up against Ryan Harrison. He started cramping midway through the, I think it was the third set, cramping in his cars for no apparent reason. I spoke to Kevin afterwards and he said he was feeling fine. The rest of his body wasn't like his legs were tight. Just these cramps started coming in his calves, losing a lot of fluid. But didn't he do so well to grind that match out? Now, this is the first time in a men's tournament that they've had the heat rule. And there ended up being a little bit of confusion because there were players kind of saying, well, do we go now? Do, do we have to say it? Do we? There was a little bit of, we've never had this before. Yes. And in fact, before Djokovic played his match, uh, the word... Uh, from inside the locker room was he wanted a discussion with some of the two officials to see if if both players chose not to have it after the third set could they choose to have it at the end of the fourth set and they had that discussion and it was decided no when they had the heat rule many years ago in davis cup actually uh, it was always historically after the third set so that's the way they were going to keep it and only one player had to agree that they want that um, the heat rule enforced and then they could have it so that's how things panned out um, and I mean probably the funniest story of the week was when Novak and Martin Fuksovic both took that injury to, uh, the, the heat timeout 
and uh, started chatting with one another in the ice bath together, both stark naked. And when uh, Novak mentioned that in his post-match interview, I think uh, it was one of the funniest post-matches I've ever heard. He said it was magnificent. Have you ever felt it <laughs> magnificent lying naked in an ice bath next to an opponent, Robbie? <laughs> Listen, uh, I didn't do as much running as those guys, but hey, that's modern day sport right there for you. And uh, I thought it was hilarious giving us, you know, it's so nice when, when the fans as well get that kind of insight as to what goes on um, in something quite unique like that. And uh, he tells a, he'd be a good raconteur, wouldn't he, old <laughs> Novak? He tells a good story. It could be an after-dinner speaker when he stops playing tennis. Now, you're going to have to leave us quite as soon because Novak Djokovic has been heading out to the court. So give me one more person or thing that's impressed you or not in this tournament. And I've got to ask for your winner at the end of these two weeks. Wow. Um, who have I been most impressed by? I want to go with someone a little different, perhaps big shout-outs to guys that don't historically always sit front and centre. And it goes to uh, a friend. Uh, he's been a fellow commentator at times. He's a, a hardened Liverpool supporter. And a big shout-out to Johnny Millman for making it through to the fourth round here. Big shout-out to him. And, of course, Zhao Sosa, who won an Estoril earlier this year, has been struggling, you know, away from that tournament where he had the win. Unbelievable win against uh, Luca Puy. The way that one finished, seven six in the fourth, I think it was. Match points going to be on a lot of highlights for the next couple of days. So it's nice to see those kind of guys who are having to battle hard um, to get a nice result for both of them, making the fourth round of a Grand Slam. That'll pay for a lot of nice Christmas presents. Who is going to win this title and be buying even bigger? Maybe they could buy houses as Christmas presents for their loved ones with the winnings. They could, man. Um, I'm going to go for the ND double. Wimbledon and the US Open. I think he's going to do it. I think that match against Fuksovic is one of those ones we're going to be speaking about come finals weekend. How did he manage to survive that? That was the tipping point in the tournament for Novak to go on and win. That's my storyline. Gigi, I've got to go and do some work. Um, Thank I'm you the, for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me as always. I wish we could chat for hours. There's so much we could chat about. It's been a, a fascinating uh, opening week here at the US Open and... Uh, I'm going to leave you in the, the capable hands of Hartfordshire's finest. Don't let Ov Palmer hear that. <laughs> well, have a good match. So Robbie Koenig leaves one commentary box. He heads to another one to cover Novak Djokovic. We, we went through a few. Let's, let's go back to the heat rule mm. to start with. I, one of the most interesting things was when everyone was asked afterwards what they did and Cameron Norrie said, I sat in the press conference room because it was the coldest place and he nearly got penalised when he came back out and he said, it's got nothing to do with me. I didn't, I didn't have the stopwatch. You, Novak Djokovic in his bath it's just been quite interesting to know because they've never had it before on the men's tour it's been on the hop hasn't it that's what it's been it's been on the hop i mean it, it's a tough one it was funny because i was actually out watching a match between julian benito and i forget who it was in the first round now it went to went to the end of the fourth end of the third set and both guys were, were with the, the chair and the chair i said uh, you got 10 minutes you know that neither guy really knew and actually both of them said no i don't want it i just want to go and change my shirt i'm fine i'm fine so I, th I think also, you know, one thing we were discussing is for guys that have been injured a little bit like Andy, actually coming out or having had 10 minutes break, you've got to use it pretty wisely because you can come back pretty stiff. And I think in many ways, sometimes you just want to actually keep going. Well, that, isn't that Martin Fuchovic? Didn't he say afterwards? That actually, it was probably a bad thing for him to go in the ice bath. Yes. Because when he came back, he felt quite stiff. And you're kind of thinking, do you think Novak Djokovic is saying, Martin, join me in the <laughs> ice bath, knowing exactly what it would do to his opponents? I mean, whatever. It was, it, it was at least common sense prevailed because they needed it, these guys, because it was brutal. This is ATP Tennis Radio. How about then Andy Murray, his first Grand Slam appearance, pulled out on the eve of Wimbledon this year's first appearance since Wimbledon last year. He felt finally ready to tackle the five-set format. Yeah, and I think it was encouraging, wasn't it? I can't think you can get away from that. It was very encouraging. Um, you know, the steps towards getting back to the top of the game, it was another one going in the right direction. You know, you've got to remember, as we keep saying, he hasn't played for very long. You know, you can't... It's more about hitting balls, I think, for Andy now, because as much as he's getting fitter and his movement is getting better, and in the fourth set, he definitely wilted. That's undeniable. A lot of players would do. He's got to, he needs to hit more balls now, Jish, because you could see there were just a couple of returns he didn't make, four and he didn't make, balls that he would normally make, that it's just time on court. It's just time on court. It's just, the, you know, getting, hitting more balls. He really 
really hasn't been able to hit that much. You know, all the the rehab has taken up so much time for him um, that it's it's about him actually seeing the ball a little bit bigger and getting more matches now. And credit to Fedasco, who has had a pretty rough head-to-head there. You know, that he suffered at the hands of Andy Murray a lot over the last of the few years. So for him actually to win that last game and to have the, the mental toughness to get through it, that was a good effort. This was the first time in a long time we've had the big four together. I want to expand it to the big five because I want to bring in Stan Vavrinkin. A lot of people felt he came back too soon from that knee surgery at the beginning of the, the Australian Open. He seems to be gathering momentum. He did fall to Milos Raonic, but better and better from Stan Vavrinka. Yeah, and to be honest, he was the better player last night for a set and a half. I did that match. He was at set points. He had break points in the first much better from the back of the court than Ranic. Uh, just couldn't couldn't convert, simply couldn't convert. Couldn't make enough returns in sets two and three. The block return that we see him use wasn't particularly effective. It was landing short. It was allowing Ranic to dictate. Ranic was very good at the net yesterday. Really impressive in terms of his hand skills at the net. I thought that was excellent from him. Um, and he got better in the third. The third set, to be honest, Vavrinka was, I think, a little mentally kind of over it. You know, having had the opportunities to, to grab it, he felt like he was the better player. He was for a while. But you're right, Stan, really encouraging from Stan's point of view that his movement and his ball striking was close to where he needed to be. There's a gentleman, you can describe this better than me, there's a gentleman that, what does he do? He stands up. And he, does he take some clothes off and he mm. starts singing? And I only bring him in, and you can describe him better, because Stan Wawrinka, who likes to look around a little bit, he, he wasn't in a good position at this point, but he was looking up at this fella on the big screen and laughing. He was. And that fella, I thought, was exclusively Ash-based, but apparently not. They've expanded his role to now take in Louis Armstrong. He is effectively a guy who is a good dancer. That's how we describe it, isn't it? He's a, he's a, rather, uh, he's a rather good dancer who throws out lots of shapes in a rather dramatic fashion and he gets the crowd going and of course he's put on the big screen here in New York so everyone on the big screen including the players can see his dancing and most of the players look up and they actually they fall themselves a smile don't they we're speaking to you from a commentary box high up looking down in the Arthur Ashe Stadium as things stand it's Saturday evening it's a night session the lights are dim there's a bit of a light show going on a spotlight will appear soon because Novak Djokovic is going to be making his way out onto court men who have come through who are being tipped for this title to go through the round of 16, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. How have you seen their first few rounds? I commentated Nadal's second round match against Vasek Pospisil. I was completely blown away. The level of performance was just one of the best matches I've ever seen him play. I didn't do the Hachinov match. I did see a fair bit of it. I did that. It okay, was absolutely stunning. I think for a lot of people, the movement of Hachinov, he's six foot six inches tall. He was doing something incredible. But I think the talking point is the knee for Rafa Nadal. This incredible footage came out onto the screens during the match of in, I assume it was the warm-up room, when he's there with, with Carlos Moya and he goes over to Moya, points to his knee and then he loads everything on the right leg as if to say it's not quite right. Quite soon into the match, he got it taped and if nothing else, it was in his mind what was going on in his knee. It just didn't look Right. Mm. And it is interesting that in his press conferences as well, he has said it is not the time to talk about it now. So what I read into that is if there was there, that means there's something to talk about, <laughs> uh, because if there was no problem, he would say there's no problem. And even if he was lying, you would brush it off. But he's not like he's not he's not hiding it, is he? He's not. He's, he's effectively saying, I'm not going to talk about it. That's the way I read it. You know, for me, I, I don't quite understand why he, if he doesn't, if he's if there isn't a problem to say, it's fine. Take that. Take that out of the equation. But. He says he's not going to talk about it, which full credit to him, by the way, because, you know, that's a case of not making excuses. I didn't see any problem against um, Vasek Pospisil. Uh, again, talking you know, to yourself and others who did the match with Hatchinov. They tell me the movement was good, so we have to take him on his word. Yeah, you wouldn't have known it until he asked the trainer to come out and put that tape underneath. Mm. And then we're just staring at the right leg and the movement seemed fine. But it was obviously worrying him enough that he did get that tape on there. But, but Karen Hatchinov, he was in the next gen tournament last year. I mean, wow, he just seems to have everything. People talk about Marit Safanov, Ganika, Felnikov, people he's looked up to, but he just seems to have all parts of the game, including a very calm temperament. Mm. Yeah, which is very un-Russian, isn't it? <laughs> if we can stereotype at times, because there have been a few of them who have been pretty explosive over the years. But you're right. I mean, just hits a big ball. Obviously, that's that's one thing that can trouble Rafa if you can go head-to-head with him. Um, but you're right. Yeah, great summer for him. Good conditions. Hard court that bounces up pretty high. That's kind of perfect for Hachinov with the, the forehand grip that he has. The forehand grip is a little vulnerable on a slightly quicker court, I think, where he gets rushed on that side. So I think these courts, everyone's talking about these courts being higher bouncing this week. 
which seems to be the way Jill Krabass, who works with us a little bit, she was saying to me she hit on one of them. It's definitely slower this year. So I think we can safely say that conditions have changed a little bit here in New York. Yeah, she was out on the Louis Armstrong mm. Stadium, which has seemed to, they're starting to label it sort of the, the graveyard of the WTA seeds because mm. we've lost Wozniacki, Kerber and Halep out on Louis Armstrong. And a lot of people are saying that it it is a lot slower than Arthur Ashe and the other courts. Yeah, and I don't think that's been denied, has it, by the tournament either. I think that's been put to them. Why that is, I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, maybe that's just, just maybe it was just one of those things. But um, yeah, for whatever reason, things have slowed down a little bit. Roger Federer, how's he looking to you? Um, I thought I did. I did see his match today with Nick Kyrgios. A lot of it, anyway. Um, <sighs> With Kyrgios, obviously, it's difficult. I mean, I think the second set was probably the best set he's played on the U.S. Harcourt season. Um, in Cincinnati, I didn't think, as I said to you before, I didn't think in Cincinnati he was hitting the ball that well. But it's all relative with him, obviously. Yeah, good match today with Kyrgios. Could have changed a lot, though, couldn't it? A three or love 40. I mean, that was a huge turning point because Kyrgios is one of the guys that can make Federer feel the heat with the quality of his serve. He can make anyone feel the heat, but especially Roger. And he can. And if he if he had gone a break up there, that could have been very different because suddenly that gives Nick a bit of a lift. He's suddenly, you know, break up to the good. Once the first set was over, you sense Federer got a lot more confident, started to be more aggressive and was able to make more returns ultimately. And I think that was the undoing of Kyrgios. At one point early in the first set, Nick Kyrgios imitated the Federer serve and it started going around on social media and people saying, well, Federer won't have been happy, he won't have appreciated it. In his post-match on-court interview, Roger Federer said, I love playing Nick, it's fun, you don't know what to expect and you get a little bit of everything. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure he's always loved playing Nick, to be honest. <laughs> I can think of a couple of matches that haven't been quite so much fun, but... Uh... I think it, it riles Roger a little bit. You know what I mean? It, it just gets the juices flying in him. He was talking, actually, to be fair to Federer, he said the same thing about placing Benoit Paire. You know, I think he likes, he just likes a challenge. He likes a challenge. You know, Benoit Paire, as we both know, is a very unpredictable player. A guy who throw all sorts, and it makes Federer think. And because he has the variety, Federer, to get, to, to find different ways to beat people, he can call on that variety. You know, if he's facing a guy like, with the greatest of respect, someone who's like a baseliner who obviously doesn't have so much in their game, Federer is able to dissect it pretty quickly, whereas against Kyrgios and Pear, he, he has to call on that variety he has. And, and, and I think he gets a kick out of that in many ways. While we're talking about Nick Kyrgios, I can't not mention, we can't not talk about the, the incident, the happening, the occasion with Jerome <laughs> by Mohamed Leani in Nick Kyrgios' match with Pierre-Hugues Hubert. I think that the thing about this, it was just something that no one had ever seen before. No, you're right. And... Uh... The ironic thing, as was pointed out to me this morning, in many ways, is that we went from one extreme to another, didn't we? Because on Tuesday, we had a situation with Elise Cornet, who was given a warning for changing her top at the far end. So we had, we had on one side, people saying, well, this is ridiculous umpiring. How stupid that people can be so insensitive. And then we went from that to Nick Kyrgios, where an umpire was trying to be sensitive to the situation and obviously went over the top. You know Mohamed Lani, I know Mohamed Lani, I've known Mo for a long time, been fortunate to get to know him. He's a super nice guy, he absolutely loves his job. You know, he is the epitome of someone who loves every minute of his job. He's got a young, he's got a family back in Spain, he lives, so he travels a lot, he's away from them, and when you're away from your family, you have to enjoy what you do, because it's tough, and I think that that's a point that needs to be made. Everybody makes mistakes. He will learn from it. And this time it just went a little bit far. But his intentions were good. He wants to see a better sport. And we all want to see a better sport. And let's just move on. Now, we should say a word. We lost Robbie Koenig because he <laughs> is currently commentating on Novak Djokovic against Richard Gasquet. What have you made of... Novak Djokovic so far at Flushing Meadows. Well, he has struggled in the heat, hasn't he? And as Robbie was saying, that match with Martin Fuskovic was obviously a big one. If I'm honest, I haven't actually done any of his matches uh, to this point. But obviously being in Cincinnati, we saw him get better and better, I think, there match by match. It wasn't the old. You know, everyone compares to the old. That's the problem he has. He's always compared to where he was two years ago. Um, but I think now he's got that match under his belt. He's played a couple of night matches. The draw looks pretty good for him, let's be honest. Um, I, obviously, Federer that in that quarterfinals, the big one. I think so far, so good. I don't think you can pick at his game. You know, he's getting there without a doubt. It feels it's been full of stories on both sides of the women's and the men's. We're focusing here on ATP Tennis Radio on the men's draw. We had the bigger shock so far today with the match you covered in Sasha Zverev. But one of the stories was quite early on. It's not the end he would have wanted. 
but it is the end for him at Grand Slam level. Yeah, David Ferrer. And what a sad end, isn't it? I, I, I almost sort of felt it was a, a kind of a fitting end, really, because there was just nothing left, was there? There was nothing left. It was almost like the indomitable spirit that he has. And he has literally run himself into the ground. And it was, I mean, what a just a, a I mean, every, I always think, you know, a, a sign of a great, a well-respected athlete is nowadays on social media. How many players on social media get on there? And every single player was on there, uh, recognizing the the uh, what David Ferrer's done in tennis. And what an unbelievable competitor! Probably the best competitor outside of Nadal in the sport, without doubt. I think in this in the Open era, I would say as far as the Open era, Zizh, the best player probably never to have won a major as well. If you go back through the records, there's a couple of guys in the mix. But his match, he's, you know, I was looking up, his win, he's, I think he won something like 700 matches or 740 matches, which is 12th on the list in the open era. The 11 above him are all world number ones. So I think that tells you a fair bit about how good his career was. And maybe if this had to happen for him, it was good that he was against such a good friend in Rafa Nadal. It was a nice moment at the end when Nadal went over exactly. and gave him a hug. And they did interview David Frere on court. Just He was just quietly leaving, but they pulled him back just to just to say, he, he's a shy man, he's a quiet man, he's a family man. He had his son Leo yes. earlier this year. But it was oh, something else, talking about having sons. If we go back to getting married, I was listening to your commentary on the Philip Kohlschreiber mm. win over Sasha Zverev. <laughs> For me, one of the strangest things this year was Philip Kohlschreiber getting married in the morning and playing kitzball mm. in the afternoon. I mean, And he was... had a cold as well, apparently. And he had a cold that day, so, so he wasn't he very married, well either. Had a cold, mm. went to play in kitzball, lost. I can see where he went to play. He was the defending champion yeah, right, going yeah. into that and it's his home tournament. And, but I, for me, that I think that was one of the most bizarre things. But the comment you made in commentary was, it's something about getting married. Mm. But it's true though, isn't it? We laugh, but it's true. You know, if your personal life is settled and you're happy, you are bound to walk on court in a more relaxed manner. That's just normal. So, you know, he's obviously very happy off the court and uh, it's it sort of, you know, it makes its way through to his tennis. A word on, on the youngest. I like to keep an eye on the, on the next gen as or just gone past next gen. We talked about Karen Hashinov, born in church. He's just gone past next gen now, but still doing well. We saw Denis Shapovalov with Kevin Anderson. Oh, Oh, it was so close between those two. And Stefanos Tsitsipas, who a lot of people really were brought to his attention in that run for him in the Rogers Cup in Toronto. And he fell early to Daniel Medvedev. But the young, and Young Chung, you still feel he needs more matches to come back from injury. Mm. Andre Rublev, the lower back stress fracture. But, but the young guys, are, they're just starting. They are. To it's, do it's, it's a huge, you know, we've discussed this before, it's a huge transition period at the moment in the game. We may have still have the big names at the top, but. It is. We are in this transitional period, and this year's been good, isn't it? The last six months have been good. It's just getting the opportunities to the younger guys, more experience as well. That's key. You know, some of these younger guys have hard. You know, Sitsipas has gotten all of a sudden from being virtually not in the majors at the start of the year to being seeded 15 here this week. I mean, that's a meteoric rise for him. He's the sort of guy that clearly can deal with it pretty well because of his outlook on life. He's a mature kid. So, but you know, we have to remember these guys have not got a lot of experience. So, give them another year, and then hopefully they'll their games will have evolved further. Yeah, no, it's. Exciting to see them here and, and getting in amongst it. So Robbie has gone for Novak Djokovic mm. to to win this title once again. Who for you is the man who's going to be lifting this title by the end of next week? Yeah, I, I'm going to have to be boring and go with the same. I have to say, uh, I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm going to go with Djokovic, and I think maybe in the top half, let's throw out there. Uh, Del Potro could be the, in my plans come through the top half I thought he was uh, he was excellent against Vadasco the back end has been a bit of an issue coming in here you know he's been slicing it a lot but now we see him rolling over the back at the top of it so uh, I think Del Potro and Djokovic could be my final Okay, so we're going for a Del Potro-Djokovic final, which I think we'd all rather like, with Djokovic mm. to win. Mm. So a packed first week full of intriguing stories, and I think we've managed to cover most of it. But it's not all for this week on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, because it's time now for ATP Tennis Radio's Jill Krabus and Seb Lozier, their interviews with some of the leading voices from tennis in the US. I'm here with Sam Gore with the World Feed and Tennis TV, but a regular anchor on ESPN here in the States and Sam first of all talking of the players here in the States um, obviously there's been Serena at the top of the women's game for a lot but does it feel like the men's game needs a superstar? Well you mean in, in terms of American tennis you know it used to so, but I feel like now this sport is so international it transcends borders I mean just in my own household 
my son's favorite player has always been Rafa Nadal, and now he loves Nick Kyrgios and Shapovalov. And so I think this sport is unique because the players transcend borders. And so I don't think it's as necessary for us to have an American superstar for Americans to pay attention to tennis. Roger Federer seems to be a citizen of the world. So he's one of the people, one of the athletes to ESPN, for example, an American network that drives the ratings needle. And if Roger Federer is on the court, they're going to cover his match because the general sports fan will watch Federer. Yeah, because America was sport for so long, of course. You know, sure, you go yeah. back to McEnroe, Connors, and then Sampras and Agassi, these great rivalries which sport th- seems to thrive on. In a way, it's no wonder that, you know, the likes of Big John and Sam Querrey and Andy Roddick before them have, mm-hmm. have struggled in a way to live up to that. You know, they're just all different uh, individuals. And I feel like this is a sport that kind of runs in cycles. And certainly I feel like John Isner has had a fantastic career because I'm from his state. And so I know a lot about his background and uh, the area he came from and what he was doing as a kid. This was never on the radar for John Isner to be a top 10 tennis player until he got out of college. So what he's accomplished, I think, is pretty amazing for John. Um, You know, as I said, it runs in cycles, and I think we have a good crop of American players. But today you just you can't predict like you used to who was going to make it and who was not and who's going to light the fire and who's not. I know you, you know John well. Are you surprised, even having known him for so long, that actually he seems to be playing his best tennis right now? And he said so himself. It's maybe taken him a little while to, to figure things out. Well, what you have to understand about John gets back to what I was just saying. He was a late bloomer. He wanted to get a college scholarship to play tennis. That was his big goal when he was younger. He did that. And then at Georgia, he had another growth spurt developed the serve. Uh, Manny Diaz, his college coach, was very good uh, in helping John develop as a, as a human being and mature and, and as a tennis player. And then when he got out of college, he went to D.C. and had that remarkable run where he uh, you know, won all those tie-break sets. And all of a sudden, he's on the tour, but he's 22, 23 years of age. So John really didn't start at this level until – a lot of guys are in the middle of their careers, you know, in his early 20s, really, I'd say 24 years of age is probably when it really clicked into him. I belong here and I can do this. So John's body, as big as it is, it's a lot younger than others. And the other thing people don't know about John is John's a workout addict because he says if he sits around for a couple of days, his body, because it's so big, gets stiff. That's when he gets the injury. So when he finished that heartbreaking loss to Kevin Anderson, he said it took him about 48 hours mentally to get over it. But he was in the gym the day he got home working out because that's just how he feels. It makes him feel better. So physically, I think John's got, you know, five or six more years in him. He's got a baby coming, too, so he needs to pay the bills. (laughs) That's true. And John's mentioned a lot lot in the past um, that he seems to play the young kids coming through the Americans more than anyone else in America. You know, he seems to play them more than Sam and, you know, more than the other guys. I don't know whether that's actually statistically (laughs) true, but I think it feels like that to him. But I guess we're talking about the Riley Apelkas and Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafo, and I think there are currently four of the top 20 in the next-gen race to Milan are Americans, which is hopeful. I think uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about with American tennis. You know, Francis seems to be, at the moment, the top of the heap. He seems to be playing the best. Um, And it just really gets down, Seb, to how much these guys want it. I mean, human being-wise, all of those young men are fantastic people. I would you know, have them over for dinner any night. They're very accessible. They're, they're, they're very well-raised young men. Uh, so when I just am talk, if I'm critical, it's just as a tennis player. And that gets back to who do you have around you and how bad do you want it? Because honestly, money comes easy to these guys these days. There's a lot of opportunities for them to have a nice living and uh, do things that their families have never been able to do before. But um, at the same time, how bad do you want to succeed in your profession? 
And I don't think that that's something that any coaching academy or formula can give you. I think that comes from within. So it's going to be interesting to see who among TFO and Taylor Fritz and those guys really um, how they end up in their into their career. Funny you should mention the money. I, ju- I just looked because I was interested to see. Um, and uh, TFO has earned the best part of a million dollars this year already. Um, and that hunger that would have driven the guys before, you know, yesteryear, we look back at those halcyon days, you know, they weren't earning the same money, were they? So it was all part and parcel of, of the progression and, and the hunger. Well, and, and now these guys may, as you say, sh- struggle for that. It will, is Francis someone that you think will have that? Well, Francis is going to have a ton of financial opportunities. Like you mentioned, he already has. I mean, what you're looking at is his on-court earnings, off-court earnings. The sky's the limit for Francis. Uh, so I, I don't know yet with Francis. He's, he has the athletic ability and the ability as a tennis player, the intellect, to succeed at this level and to be a top-ten player. But, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. It's interesting you mentioned this generation versus other generations. Brad Gilbert, one of my coworkers, here in the States, I remember uh, Jimmy Arias, another good friend of mine, asked him one time, because when they were playing on the tour, your ranking was based on a certain number of events and you could drop a certain number from your ranking. So you had to kind of keep it in a certain number and not play too much or it would actually hurt your ranking. Brad played every week of the year. And Jimmy would say, Brad, you're killing yourself. Why are you doing this? Your ranking's like 15 in the world. You could be five if you just cut down your schedule. And he said... Every week is a chance to pick up a check. And the guys today do not look at it that way. In, in some aspects, though they're elite professional athletes and they treat their bodies way better than that other generation did, they're almost borderline celebrities in addition to athletes, whereas in yesteryear, guys were playing professional tennis to earn a living. So just in terms of the, you know, the, the, the panorama, I guess, of American sport, you, you don't see the sport losing ground to other sports because it doesn't have a, currently a, a massive American male star. Not at all. Uh, I feel like it, at one point in our history that was probably the case, uh, that transition period between Agassiz, Sampras, and Roddick because we had had it come off that incredible era of Courier, Chang, Martin, Sampras, Agassi, Mal Washington, I mean, I could keep going on. I'm sure I'm leaving some guys out. And then all of a sudden, Roddick. There was one guy. So, And Andy did a really solid job of carrying that mantle. And today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a sports fan who doesn't know who Andy Roddick is. But that was kind of an era where I feel like people were starving for that American fan to get support. Then the Williams sisters came along. Then the Bryan brothers made doubles popular. So we've kind of been in a golden age with just a few players. But I think tennis is positioned in the United States in such a way that people know who the players are, whether they're American or not, and and have their favorites. And just finally, Sam, who do you fancy for the U.S. Open? For the first time, no idea. Who's even a favorite? And I'm not trying to dodge your question. I'm trying to be honest with you. This is the one year where there's a question mark that you could ask about every top player. Um, So I feel like this is going to be a very interesting U.S. Open. This could be one of those U.S. Opens where we see a Chilich win or we see one of the guys that's 5 through 10 win their first major. Uh, There's no clear-cut favorite. You can never count out Federer and Nadal. Um, Is Djokovic ready? Still don't know. So it's just... It's wide open this year, Seb, and, I, and that's the honest truth. I was able to grab next to me, and I'm honored to say that Jimmy Arias, former number five in the world, semifinalist, U.S. Open, and winner of the 1981 French Open Mixed Doubles. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us here on ATP Times Radio. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> how fun is it to watch all these guys on the tour now? Because you were just telling me off air how good you think everybody is. It's amazing for me to see these players thinking back to when I played, when I played, everybody had a weakness. And you sort of, my job was to hide my weakness and find your weakness. Today's players, when you watch them, there's no weaknesses. They crush every ball. They move unbelievably well. The weakness is maybe the shot that they've hit seven winners with. They'll miss a few more times or a few too many times. And uh, so I'm, I'm amazed watching them. I'm always, I can't believe the points that we see. 
Now, the difference between um, when you played and now, what what do you feel like has improved the most? Obviously, we've talked about the strength and the racket and technology and stuff like that. But as far as the players themselves, what do you feel like has improved the most across the board? As I said, no real weaknesses that you can see now. Yeah. And in the past, there was a stroke that was bad. I mean, and now the only problem with the game now in my mind is that everyone plays very similarly so there's not for instance if I was playing Stan Wawrinka in my era if he was playing he would be serving volleyed against 500 times a match because he just blocks the return and floats it back and serving volleys would knock it off today's players stay back start the point and then Stan's unbelievable once the point started so they're not taking advantage of that weakness um, because they all seem to play the same I'm not sure if today's players think as much as my era did as far as getting to someone's weakness, it feels to me like they're more interested in their own game, just worried about their own shots, their own game, and not as much how it's affecting their opponent. So there's been a talk about who's going to replace the top players once Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic, once, once those players start to retire. You're seeing this new surge of players like Azverev, and also we'll mention the Canadians, especially Shapovalov and Ajay Asim, the Australian Alex de Minor, Sitsipas. A lot of these players are starting to show all-around games, a lot of them coming into the net. Do you think that's what's going to push the next players, that type of game style is incorporating an all-around game? No question. I think that the game, I, I'm loving it right now because of these next-gen guys. It's sort of been a while. I, obviously, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, incredible players, Andy Murray. Um, but it's been a long time that they've dominated. And it's nice to see this new group, to me, looking like they're getting to a level at such a young age that they're ready to step up in two or three years and take over and and be the new stars and it seems to always work like that there's always like a cluster of great players in a certain age group and then there's not so many for seven eight nine ten that can sort of supplant that great cluster seems to me like this new cluster all those players you mentioned they're going to be the next group now, speaking of young age, you turned pro at the age of 16, and then as a 19-year-old, you were still so young, you finished the year ranked number six in the world. Someone like a Felix, for example, who just turned 18, like what do you feel like are the pressures are on these young kids, and how did you deal with those pressures at such a young age? What's funny is I actually felt like there was less pressure when you're a teenager because you have in the back of your mind that I've got time to get better I'm you know I'm playing these men and I'm not a man yet I'm I'm still a kid so once I get to become a man I'll be beating them that was sort of the feeling so I just played really loose when I was a teenager even though my dad always said I peaked at 12 so (laughs) I should have turned pro at 12 I would have been number one for sure (laughs) at that stage. Um, That's interesting because um, for for me on the WTA, they felt pressure to have to be successful by 18, actually. They felt pressure if they, they felt like they had failed already, a lot of them, if they weren't successful by 18, 19. Well, that is because on the the WTA tour, they had so many 14-year-old, 15-year-olds that were able to make it. So that was the way to make it, is you're going to have to do it young or you're not going to do it. That was sort of the thinking. But in the men's game, nobody, especially when I turned pro, John McEnroe made semis of Wimbledon and went to Stanford for a year before he turned pro. So nobody turned pro. I just did it because Nick Boletari's nuts. And, uh, <laughs> and I had a win in an exhibition match against Eddie Dibbs, and Eddie Dibbs is ranked four in the world, and I'm 16. And it's an exhibition, a one-set exhibition, by the way, not even two sets. And I won that set, and when I got off the court, Nick goes, that's it, you're turning pro. And I ended up getting offered by an agency 200 grand if I did. So I decided, (laughs) all right, I'll go ahead and forego a college scholarship. (laughs) This this should be able to cover it. So, you know, that's how that happened. Um, and I, I think also the Nadal, Federer, and all these guys are playing longer, too. They're encouraging these kids to know that they're, they can have a much longer career. Um, I don't know why that's... I know that they train better. And right. Taking care of themselves. Taking and, care of themselves better. But, man, it's still... I trained hard. And when I was yeah. in my 30s, you just don't recover as fast. But somehow these guys... I mean, maybe the training's that much better. Well, I think also the knowledge and the research that people are starting to know. I mean, just start knowing more about nutrition, how to take care of yourself. Uh, I, want, I wanted to ask you, too, um, 
because everyone, there's so much talk about who's going to replace these top guys. Do you think that puts pressure on the next generation or not necessarily? I think they probably feel pressure amongst themselves. Okay. So, you know, when I was coming up, Mats Vilander and I were the same age. And, you know, he obviously did a little better than I did, but there was always that competition. So if I played him, I felt that's when I did feel nervous. When I played guys that were 25 years old and been out there for a long time, I just felt like going for it. When I played Mats, I felt like this is going to be my competition for number one. Or, you know, two or three years later, Aaron Crickstein came and was doing well right away. And he was another guy. The first time I played him, I choked. Um, got over that eventually, and I ended up 5-3 lead and head-to-head. But <laughs> just want to get just that in. Just want to throw in. that in there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you brought up college, for example, and you were an assistant coach at the University of South Florida. Um, wh- what's your take uh, as far as, like, for parents nowadays making the decision on whether the kids should go pro or not? I mean, we've had great examples. For example, Isner and Anderson at Wimbledon, both of them went to college, and they've had successful careers. What's your um, my take feedback is, on yeah, that? My t- take is that unless you're winning futures – and getting your ranking to 300 before college, if you can't do that, you should go to college. You're not ready. So if you're, you know, there's a couple of kids I remember I was recruiting, and I went and talked to his dad. He was in the qualifying of Futures tournament. He was a good player. Um, And I walked up to him, and the dad said, you're wasting your time. He's already signed with an agent. And he lost second round of qualies in a Futures He's going to take three to five years before he's winning any matches and making any money. It's just going to be draining money from him. That's the kind of kid that needs to go to college. Um, There's very few that are that good, that young. Well, we talk with everyone on ATP Tennis Radio, and uh, there's one man here who has an encyclopedic knowledge of players and coaches on tour, in particular younger players, because he is... Mike Cation, the voice of the ATP Challenger Tour. Um, and Mike, first of all, thanks for, for talking with us. Amazing to be here. Thank you. It's no exaggeration, is it, to say that uh, you're, the, you're the voice of the tour, especially here in the States? In the States, yeah. So I've been working for the USTA Pro Circuit for five and a half years now. Um, we do, boy, I'm trying to think, 16 challengers per year. Um, so I end up doing solo commentary on about 500 matches each year give or take a couple. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's it's been an incredible honor just to get to know a lot of, especially the young Americans who have come through over the last couple of years, Tiafo, Fritz, those guys. Um, but yeah, we've had an incredible run of, of very talented young players who have come through over the last couple of years. And it's a little different here, isn't it? You are, are normally sat in the crowd. Right. Do your commentary. How does that work? It's it's pretty crazy to all of a sudden just have people as close as you and I are right now, three feet, who then will turn around if you say something that they maybe don't agree with, and they're staring at you. Um, that ha- that was the case in Binghamton, New York, a few weeks ago. Uh, Winnetka, a month ago, I was literally on court. I'm about eight feet away from the corner of the baseline. Um, Aptos, California, I'm in the player lounge doing commentary. So there are players who are watching their doubles partner and just giving me the side eye. Um, but you just have to learn how to use your voice creatively, I think, at the challenger level, much more so here. I, I talk to Nick and Robbie and Kevin, and, and they're yelling and getting enthusiastic. And if I do that, the players are literally staring at me and yelling, hey, you know, pipe down. Um, but it, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's such a unique experience because you, you do get the fan experience while you're also commentating. You hear what they're saying when they actually say, wow, when they're really awed. So you get something like that that you don't get at the higher level. And you were telling me before, you, you, you're almost in, in the players' heads at times yeah. because you're, you're saying stuff that they're thinking. Yeah, so this happened my first year in Binghamton, New York, Tennis Sandgren. I was saying, you know, he looks very frustrated here, was deep in the third set, and, I, and, and, and he grabs his towel it's about 15 seconds later after the next point, wipes it off, and as he's got the towel in front of, me, in front of him, he says to me, I can hear every word you're saying, and slams down his towel in disgust, and I felt miserable. I didn't talk for the rest of the broadcast. Um, and afterwards we talked and he said, the one thing I, I need you to do, I understand you've got to give score and it's break point. 
don't tell me how I'm feeling where you can hear where I can hear how I'm feeling from you. I don't need that. I know I'm frustrated. You don't need to tell me I'm frustrated. So it's a unique experience that I get that a lot of these other commentators don't. And through that, you must get quite close to these players. Yes, very much so. Um, There are several players with whom I I text on a regular basis, ask me uh, how my daughter's doing at home. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a unique experience because I'm sharing the same hotels. I'm sharing the same player lounge. So yeah, it's, they've, they've accepted me quite a bit and and I'm really honored that they take um, their confidence in me that they're telling me things about their doubles partners that maybe I shouldn't know and I have to learn what that filter is so it doesn't come across on commentary tennis fan absolutely Um, I played when I was in high school I blew out my shoulder I was going to be going to college and play but I just had to give it up Um, then I was lucky enough to be um, at the University of Illinois where Craig Tiley was the head coach he's now the head of Tennis Australia he asked me when I did a radio interview with him if I would be the PA announcer I then when being the PA announcer at the University of Illinois started working as a press aide at a challenger and then when this job opened up about five years ago somebody knew somebody and said Mike might be willing to do it and, and here I am so what's the best challenger to work at I'm not going to ask you the worst because that would not be fair but there must be a few that, that, sure. that stick out there's one that's actually going on this week in Vancouver that is unbelievable it's a clubhouse that also has a hockey rink a curling rink so imagine you're you know you go play and then you're able to go inside on the ice and go curling um tiburon is across the bay from san francisco the views there are amazing um they all have their own charm like i i know that's going to kind of get my way out of this question but everyone has their little bit of charm binghamton new york like i said it used to be the home of ibm they lost IBM. It's economically really struggling, but they're in a city park and they do everything they can to make it the best tournament they can. So each one has its own unique personality. Um, so it's, it's really up to the player or in my case, the commentator. It's hard for me to go against Tiburon though. It is scenic. You've got deer literally running behind you. Um, you're right on the bay, great food. So I, I guess I'd have to say Tiburon. And the list of players who've come through, you know, even just in recent years, is so long, let's face it. Um, let's start with the Americans, though. Sure. I mean, you've already mentioned Dennis, you mentioned tennis. Um, who would you pick out, really, as being the, you know, the, the shining lights to come out of the U.S. Challenger Tour? Yeah, it, I'm, those two guys, what they've done at a, at a more advanced age, if you will, at the 24, and in tennis's case, 26, what they've done and gone through the challenger level for several years is pretty impressive. Obviously, the next-gen group of, of Ruben and Tiafo and uh, Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, and I get asked about those four in particular a lot, as long with Stefan Kozlov, Tommy Paul. I think Francis is so unique with his personality, and so he's the one that stands out for me. Um, just because of that ability to transcend the sport a little bit. Uh, also, the fact that he's African-American, his, his backstory with his parents coming from Africa, um, that, that's the one that I think shines for, for the most people. Taylor's got an immense amount of talent. Riley Opelka has not been able to stay healthy. Same with Tommy Paul. Um, but I think Francis is the one that people just gravitate to because he is just such a unique human being um, that it's really been a pleasure, even from match number one, a smile on his face all the time so I think Francis is probably that one and of the non-Americans yeah. I, I guess and not everyone I guess will play mm-hmm. the challenges in America because financially the, the incentive right. isn't as great so the travel and the accommodation all has to be taken into account I guess right. um, I mean Stefanos Tsitsipas who's sitting over there right. finalist in Toronto <laughs> was still playing challenges this March right. in, in Europe uh, I think he played in Brest or something um, he I don't think's played in the States mm-hmm. whereas a lot of other players are who, who are the, the best of the non-Americans if you like who you've really loved watching on the challenge what's, what's funny is as you were saying that question uh, Kyle Edmund just walked by and, and then realized we were doing an interview so he didn't want to interrupt Kyle came through and was amazing um, won the Binghamton Challenger the Brits have actually done really well at that particular Challenger we had Nick Kyrgios um, in 2014 it was Nick and, and Tanasi coming through at the same time um, and then a year later, uh, Sasha Sverev played in Sarasota. So y- you, you have the peak guys, you know, top 10 caliber players. We also had Jack Sock at the beginning of, of my run. I think Nick was, again, the one who was most dynamic. 
um, in terms of just the personality, again, that you have in terms of the play, but also the fact that he would come off the court with that kind of swagger. And I know he gets, you know, a bad rap among some people, but I, I, he comes up to me every time I saw him. I saw him down in the player lounge and, you know, gives me that the man hug, if you will. Um, so he's the one I think that really stands out just in terms of the way he captivated an audience. Uh, another one that I, I know this is going to be kind of an odd one, Dan Evans. Dan Evans, the way he captivates a crowd at, at a challenger when he's playing at a peak level is unlike anything else. Um, but yeah, Sasha Zverev was amazing. Misha Zverev with his personality was, was fantastic. But those are the ones that really stick out. And in terms of the standard, I'm guessing because of... I mean, the standard across the board just seems to be going up and yes. up. I remember earlier this year, I think it was in Rome, Chris Kermode talking in a press conference about the next-gen finals mm. and how when he came up with the, you know, it was kind of his brainchild. And he yeah. said he'd envisaged that when they kicked this thing off, the players would be ranked kind of 250 to 450 in the right. world. And, of course, most of them are, you know, top 100, if not top 50, right. playing the next-gen finals. Um, in the same way, the Challenger Tour is welcoming players from, you know, inside the top 100, and you get the likes of Kane Ishikori dipping back in yes. to, to build up. What is the standard, if you, if you had to sort of, you know, classify what the standard is on the challenge? Yeah, it varies from tournament to tournament. Uh, it, I think a lot of these challenger-level players, A, feel kind of disrespected, and so there's a lot of people who just will go back and play a challenger after coming from, say, Australia or coming from the French in Wimbledon, and... You just have this kind of mopey attitude, and so you might have a bad couple of rounds. But ultimately, you see guys like Tanasi Kokonakis winning in Aptos, Tennis Sandgren's run in Australia. You saw that. He made it to quarterfinals, and he was in challengers a couple weeks prior to that. The, the level is not that bad. The level is, has certainly increased where I think there's a regular acceptance now at, that the challenger level is good enough to compete with the best. Um, and I think that's that's changed over the five years I've been doing this. Now we had Sam Query drop down and play a few challengers. 2015, played three straight weeks and won all three weeks. But it was important for him to get the matches, and he was tested week in, week out. Um, so I, I think there's just more an acceptance now of, of the higher levels that this challenger level is good enough to compete 250s, 500s, week in, week out. So if you ask that, you know, Tanasi, for example, yeah. or whoever, I'm sure you talk to the players on tour as yeah. well. Why, why would they not play a tour level event? Why would they stay in the challenges? And, and I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, when do they think is the best time mm. to to transition back to the tour? When, when are they confident sure. after how many sort of challenges? I guess it depends on the player. Tanasi is actually a great example. He could be getting wild cards right now. Um, for him, it's about picking up matches, and, and especially matches where he knows he'll be tested. When Tanasi Kokonakis goes and plays the challenger, everybody there knows who he is, right? Every player knows who he is. They know a scout on him where you don't necessarily know a scout on somebody who's ranked 300. So he's going to be pushed. Even if he's at a higher level, he's going to be pushed. So I think a lot of these players just realize this is an opportunity for them to get good matches, winnable matches, but good matches and get pushed. Um, and, and I think that's really where, where a lot of those players are at. Just how do you um, kind of balance, okay, I need maybe three or four matches that are going to be good matches versus, all right, if I go to a 250, I'm not seated. I might have to play Nishikori in the first round or, or team in the first round, something like that. That is it, though, now for this week. Thank you very much to Nick Lester and Robbie Koenig for taking the time to join me. It's been a pleasure to have your company. If you'd like to leave us a review from where you get your podcast, that would be absolutely wonderful. I'll be back with you in a week's time when we will know if indeed Novak Djokovic has won the US Open for another time. And we'll be looking back on the two weeks in Flushing Meadows. But enjoy the rest of your day, enjoy the rest of the week, and we'll be back with you soon. 